Welcome, everyone. Um, for those of you I haven't met, my name is Michelle Ting, and it's just so good to see all of y'all out here today. Um, so for Halloween, I am dressed as a flower who has risen up out of the dark to bring you this word today. Um, and you know, you know I planned this. Um, and I've been part of the ECV family for about 10 years now and uh, currently serve as one of the elders. Now today we're gonna continue our series, Grateful and Hungry, where we're really steeping in some of the gifts that God has had for us and poured into our community for the last 14 years, and yet we are still hungry for more, amen? And so I wanna actually focus today on how our peace might be wrapped up in seeking the peace of our city. This is a phrase that comes from the book of Jeremiah, a scripture that has long been in the core of who ECV has been from the beginning when it was planted in 2007. Now, in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah is speaking to the Israelites who have just been carried away captive from Jerusalem, their sacred homeland, to Babylon, a powerful empire. And you can follow along starting in chapter 29. I'll paraphrase a bit uh, and focus uh, toward the end on uh, verse 7. But thus says the Lord to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat, marry, have kids. Then in verse 7, Jeremiah writes, but... Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, when I came to New Haven back in 2007 to study at Yale, I was seeking not so much the welfare of the city, but a future with hope. A, a kind of rescue. And the reason is because I was born into this American empire to a family of boat people, a family of Vietnamese refugees who had just been exiled from their homeland after centuries of foreign occupation and decades of warfare. So at the time, Yale seemed like good news it was rescue, a kind of relief from the costs of war that my family and my home life were absorbing. And it offered a way out, a way to make sense of why we went through all this loss and fracture and death and dispossession. Now in 2007, that year when ECV was planted, a woman by the name of Kathy Maskell, many of you know, uh, also a Vietnamese woman, she co-planted this church along with Hannah and Matt Crosman and her husband Caleb. Now she was also preoccupied with rescue, with what future and hope might be available to children who'd just fallen victim to, to sex trafficking. You see, at the time, she was working for an organization ECV still partners with, Love 146. And I remember being in her home group at 180 Colony, the house that ECV was planted out of. And 
I remember celebrating with her this passage of a law. It was called the Connecticut Safe Harbor Law. And it was a law that would offer protections and refuge and services to those children, rather than what was actually happening, which was a kind of punishment for them once they would fall prey to their captors. They were vulnerable to punishment again in the system. And I just remember so many early ECVers then. And I want to give a shout out to the Asian American women specifically from the beginning of ECV. Audrey Lynn, Asha Evans, Hannah Crosman, Grace Blum, Sonny Jonas. All of these women holding it down in the city, seeking its welfare, giving refuge and protection to the least. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I realized now that they were actually expressing a longing, a longing that my people always had for peace in a city that could be so violent to its people. And I began to wonder then, you know what? Maybe I still need rescue. Because even though I had already said yes to Jesus at that point, and even though I had gotten inside somewhere, some, this fortress of Yale that was telling me I had a future, I had hope, inside I still felt so ill at ease, so far from home. Now, fast forward a few years, it's 2011, and I'm uh, about to graduate from Yale, and I sense a call from God. Stay in New Haven, and specifically, move to the Kensington neighborhood, along with a group of other ECVers, including Josh and Tina, to serve and live and love among the families there. And you know, when I would spend time in Kensington in this last year while I was still at school, I felt oddly at home. And I don't think it was naivete. I think it was memory. An ancient memory getting stirred up about what it feels like to live with kin. When you can harvest the riches of family when you don't have much else. Not much else that would get in the way. And in Kensington, I was reminded of uh, the neighborhood that I grew up in, in San Jose, California. I was reminded of the kids I used to play with. I was reminded of things like the risk of gang violence, of gun violence. I was in the streets. People coming in and out of prison, like my uncle. And as much as I also, I sensed kinship there, I also sensed a lack of peace. A lack of safety that my family sensed back in San Jose. And you know what they thought? They were like, you know what? We just, we just got out of a war. So we're not going to do this again. And we ended up moving to the suburbs. And here I was, 3,000 miles away in New Haven, Connecticut, 2011. And here God was, 
returning me to the place where my people once were, when he found them, when they needed rescue most, desperate for peace. And absent that, in their homeland, in Vietnam, they were forced to flee in search of a better country, only to find America is just as violent. America is just as uh, strong enough to make them prone to violence. And I remember then just feeling super frustrated. You know, I was part of this group of friends who were discerning this move to Kensington, and I remember during this discernment session, um, I just threw out this question to them. I was like, why would you return to a place of poverty if you literally just got out of it? Why would you return to a place of violence, of captivity, if you literally just escape that? My family worked so hard to get out of this very situation. Why would you return? And honestly, I was like offended that Jesus would ask this of me, knowing what we went through. But that's the question I want to ask us today. Why would you return to a place of poverty or violence or captivity, especially if you or your folks just got out of it? And of course, there's a way of asking this question where you can actually close off the answer. You can be like, Michelle, you don't. We don't go back. We don't do that. I know that's what I was saying. And then there's a way of asking that question with genuine curiosity. And that's the posture I want us to take today. So let me pray. God, thank you for bringing all of us here to New Haven in 2021. God, I ask that you would help us see how you're seeking the peace of this city. Would you help us listen to what you're saying? Would you have your way with us today? In Jesus' name. I want to bring us back to the scripture, to Jeremiah 29. And if you're following along, we're at verse 8. Um, and you know, there's a reason why uh, after the Lord instructs the exiles to seek the peace of the city, because in its welfare, you'll find your welfare, he issues this warning. Do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. God knows us so well. He knows that in the position of exile, there are plenty of dreams and false prophets and lies being sold to us vying for our devotion, vying to, to grasp us with and enamor us with the dreams that they dream. 
And let me just pause right here and uh, help define exile for us because some of y'all are like, I didn't grow up in a family of refugees. I was born and raised in America or, you know, that's a distant past. And actually, I want to encourage us to imagine that, hey, actually, and some of us are quite familiar with this, that we all kind of feel like exiles sometimes. It's all too familiar for some of us and some of us just need to be reminded And what it is, is a sense of living in a city or a nation or a world that's actually hostile to peace. It's actually the condition of the land and all that has been done on it and built on it and the nation and all the blood poured out here that produces exiles, that creates exiles and requires exiles to keep working, to keep its dreams intact. And I love what poet Solma Sharif talks about the end of exile. The whole point of exile is to create audiences of the dead. People who are dead to or audience to, she says, the life that is not mine. The lives that were never meant for us. The lives that do not and cannot belong to us. But sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking we can grasp at that life. We can get inside it. We can make it work out here in the land that is hostile to peace. We can make its dreams our own, like it fits us, like it suits us, like a costume. And I know I did. In 2011, as I'm sort of a newly newly an outsider again, having been just graduated from this institution and, um, you know, no longer enjoying those fancy meals, no longer having that card access, feeling honestly kind of naked, roaming around New Haven where I was continuing to live and without this institution or a slick job title uh, to make sense of my existence, I was just waitressing and living in Kensington, and it was humiliating. And I'm thinking then, you know, I can't do this. Let me just, let me just resolve this condition of exile, of humiliation myself. Let me just figure out a solution because what I'm feeling is I'm feeling so far from home, but yes, God is also inviting me to consider what it means to love mercy and you know, um, imagine community and kinship here. But let me just do that uh, in a place that actually keeps me comfortable and avoids the humiliation of admitting my true condition, which is that I feel like a nobody. And let me tell you something that you can actually tell what kinds of refuges you've you've put sort of um, uh, the places that you sought refuge in um, and how cheap they are and how flimsy those foundations are when you like step outside of it. They don't follow you, and then you feel like a nobody. That's how you can tell how cheap those kinds of refuges are. And so what I end up doing is it's the year 2012 at this point, and I decide, you know what, I'm just going to leave. I'm going to 
go back home, what I thought was home in California, and uh, I'm going to find myself a job, uh, one that sounds like I'm doing justice. So what I what I land myself a job. Some people are laughing because they know my story. <laughs> it's a hot mess. Um, I land a job at the Civil Rights Organization. It's actually an incredible organization. Y'all should look it up and support them. But it's called the Asian Law Caucus. It's this historic organization based out of SF. And uh, they serve the least, the poorest, and the most hated among the Asian American community. And so I get this job because I'm thinking, OK, Asian, check. I'm Asian, so that works law, lawyers apparently do justice. <laughs> and like, I have no idea what that means at the time. But I'm thinking that's actually an old dream. That's an old dream before I ever met Jesus. And I can make it work. And caucus. I don't actually know what caucus means. But my job is, this is how I'm thinking, y'all. I'm trying to piece my life together. Community advocate, that's the job title. And I'm like, yes, that sounds so fly. That's like noble. I'm like gonna be an advocate. I was an advocate when I was a teenager and it's an, it's, it gave me meaning then. So maybe it can give me significance and meaning and purpose now. But the truth was, I wasn't advocating for anybody. And the reason was because I didn't stay in that place of humiliation where I felt the gaze of scoffers, maybe not real scoffers, but I felt it in the shadow of this. I didn't stay in the place of even knowing what it feels like to truly be reviled, to be despised. I didn't know that for myself to also know the refuge available for me in the Lord. That what he says, what, what is said in the Psalms is true. That the Lord redeems the lives of his servants. That those who seek refuge in him will never be put to shame. Do you know that for yourself? And what I realized was that I wasn't just trying to hold this life together. I was holding lies together. The lie that Yale actually worked, that America works, to, that it actually did something to rescue me and my people from a condition of homelessness and utter insignificance and powerlessness against its empire. I was trying to hold that lie together. And y'all, do you know what lies do? They unravel lives. Lies tear families apart. And I know that because when there was um, a Vietnamese gentleman who came to the Asian Law Caucus where I was working, and he, what he needed was translation. He had some legal documents that he needed to be translated, and I was the only one there who spoke Vietnamese. Um, and so uh, he ends up, you know, we have a meeting, and there's this glass partition between us, and I'm trying to translate his papers, and you know what? I couldn't do it. Because at that point, I had been so groomed into nobility in America had attained such high status, had uh, attained uh, an elite education, learned English, secured this job to then face him. And what came out of my mouth was actually gibberish to him. Nonsense. 
I couldn't speak. But more than that, the word of my life, it didn't mean anything anymore. And certainly did not bring him good news. When I told him, I can't understand you. And he looked back and he said, I don't understand. What do you mean you can't help me? And he ended up leaving and I never saw him again. And I don't know what happened to him. I have a hunch what happened. So many stories like this, estranged from my kinfolk. And the hard truth I realized that God continued to interpret for me later was that I became one of those kinfolk that Jeremiah talks about. If you follow along to verse 16, one of those kinfolk who didn't go out with you into exile. He's speaking to the Israelites. And those people that I didn't go out with, it wasn't just the Vietnamese undocumented folks in the Bay. It was the black and brown folks in New Haven that I left. The families who were also dispossessed, who also lacked lasting security, who didn't have homes, who didn't have hope. And the thing about following a lie the dreams that the dreams the dreams of the diviners and the false prophets the thing about it is you start to become that your life begins to signify that is something others can follow and that's dangerous territory especially for folks who don't have they actually can't follow that and live they can't make it inside there are people who come to the U.S. thinking that they can actually get inside, but they're actually not allowed to be here. You can talk to Tina, who serves as an immigration lawyer, who actually is doing the justice, y'all, and she'll tell you. What are some of those lies that the very lives of the people that she served expose? That America was never made for them. Never, America was never made for us. Don't listen to the false prophets, Jeremiah says. And what's crazy is that whereas this man was abundantly clear about his status in this empire, I was just fooling myself. Because I could cover up my actual status, feeling like a nobody, humiliated for what I was believing in, these lies, these dreams, because I actually had the means to. I bought things. I started dressing the part, speaking the language, securing job after respectable job. And so I actually want to ask you, what's your cover? What lies are you trying to make work or prove? instead of standing naked and humiliated, but at least on the rock of refuge. Real 
about our need for Jesus to rescue us from this life that is not ours, that was never made for us. And thankfully, um, God knows what we're, we're dealing with, the kind of lies that we've been sold, that he sends real prophets, real messengers. And for me, this is while I'm living in, still living in the Bay Area, uh, in a suburb in Silicon Valley, for me, that real prophet was an unhoused man that I came across um, just outside of a Walgreens, right by where uh, Jason and I were living. And um, he didn't actually say anything to me directly, but I felt the Lord say, listen. You've stopped listening for a long time. Listen. And when I listened, what his life said to me was that it reminded me that the land we were living in was actually violent. That the land we were living in was actually violent. And some of us need to be reminded of that today. Even though there were um, these quiet streets and the blue skies, it's California, remember? The beige stucco, so much beige stucco out there in the suburbs. Here it's the colonial homes, the tree-lined streets. This land we live in is actually violent. And I had to ask myself, what happened here? Not just to him, but to me. That just a few years earlier, I had been breaking bread with unhoused folks here in New Haven. Been reading the scriptures abundantly clear that I too was seeking a home, needed a home. And when I actually listened to what his life was telling me, it somehow brought me home. To the point where Jason and I had to be honest with ourselves, we've been listening to some false prophets who's been, who've been deceiving us about what kind of life at ease we might have if we continue to distance ourselves from the least. And we had to actually radically displace ourselves from a context where, yeah, we were going to church, you know, we had a home, but we were still so lost. We were lying to ourselves. And we had to come back to New Haven, a place that is also violent. But at least here, I knew I had people who would help me listen who were abundantly clear about their status in this empire. We need to listen. We need not just to listen, but to heed and do. And here in New Haven, something that I've been listening to is um, the fact that, and many of us are aware of this, that there have been 22 homicides here in this city and that really disturbs me. Um, and there's this uh, botanical garden of healing that some of y'all have frequented and even tended to. And it's created by mothers who've lost children to gun violence uh, here in New Haven. 
um, and it's beautiful. It's a place of, of, of refuge, of contemplation, of beauty. And there's this timeline that you can walk down. And it starts from, I think, 1976. Um, and it continues on to this year. And every step of the way, you can follow this timeline. And you can map on your own life on this timeline. And so I'm seeing, you know, 1976. That's the year after the fall of Saigon. Um, there's a war happening in my motherland. There's a war happening here. Um, 2009, where I'm preoccupied with a future, with hope for myself, who absorbed the costs of that. And then 2021, where we're at now. 22 homicides, y'all. But you know what disturbs me even more? What disturbs me even more is when there's a shooting in Fairhaven or The Hill or New Hallville, when there's bodies on the sidewalk, there are bodies at ease in East Rock, in Woodbridge, in Beaver Hills. And I don't think it's a mistake that the seed of ECV emerged out of a home in Beaver Hills, 180 Colony. And Beaver Hills is the first planned suburb in America, a vision of safety, of peace. And this is why in Jeremiah it says, build houses. But, I like underlined the but as I was reading the scripture, but seek the peace of the city because in its peace you will find your peace. And so that's why the Lord tells people in, um, uh, in Isaiah 28, that those who make refuge in lies, in falsehood, folks who take, uh, have taken shelter in the falsehood, that to um, become increasingly distanced and deafened from the cries of their streets, increasingly at ease with a violent land, that shelter is going to crumble. He says that the Lord, that the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no longer cover its slain. Isaiah 26. I want to share one last story. You know, these streets begin to disclose the blood shed on it. We heard that, we saw that in July 2020 when a group of ECVers um, partnered with Ice the Beef, an organization that's long sought the peace of the city uh, in New Haven. And we went on a prayer caravan. We started visiting these sites of violence where there had been instances of gun violence um, throughout New Haven. And Ms. Lisa, who some of you know, uh, who runs the child care center in Kensington, right across the street from, a, uh, from the house where Josh and Tina used to live um, and where Lucretia used to live, she recently lost a nephew to a shooting that happened right outside a store on Whaley, just a few blocks from where I live. And we're praying, um, we're lamenting, and uh, Ms. Lisa can't hold it in anymore, and she just cries out to her late nephew. She says, why would you return, my nephew, to the place that nearly killed you? Why would you come back to this place if you knew you could get shot? Why would you come back? 
And when he did come back, he lost his life. And I don't know why. I don't know the answer to that. But I think we can learn from her return to a place of death. That the only way to go back to these sites of violence in our lives, in our city, in our world, and find a way through is to return with God, to return in prayer, with community, in honest lament, but in faith that Jesus is the only person we can ever meet who continues to return again and again, making his way back to sites of violence in our lives, in our world. Until the word that cries out in the streets is not senseless death, but life abundant. I want to ask you, I want to present to you Ms. Lisa's question and a few invitations Why would you return to a place where you could get shot? Why would you return to a place of violence, of poverty, or of captivity, especially if you just got out of it? Number two, who in New Haven is asking you this? What messengers is God sending you to remind you of who you are and who you belong to in a violent land? And this last one is an important one. Who might you need to disappoint in order to do this? Another way of thinking about this is there are people who are banking on you to make it, who make a profit if you make it, who's banking on you to get inside this life that is not yours to prove the lie works. And the hard thing is, sometimes those people are the very people who love us and know us most. And we have to break the bad news. We have to say, as I did, you know, mom, I know, I know this looks good, but I can't make it like this. I can't make it out here. I didn't make it. Because when we admit this, we can join with all the others who also didn't make it and can't make it. I think about this um, case of human trafficking that happened this time last year, this time last October. And there was this group of 39 Vietnamese from a province in Vietnam called Nghệ An. And they were actually trafficked into Essex in the UK. And this last text message that a daughter sends to her uh, mother is, Mom, I didn't make it. I can't breathe. Because that group actually froze to death in the end. That horrified me. And you know, the only people who survive a journey like that are the wolves. 
the traffickers are called wolves. The false prophets who sell a lie to people who are most vulnerable and desperate for, to get out of their situation. They say, hey, I can give you a way out of your debt, out of your poverty, out of the violence. If you just trust me, I got a good life out there for you if you follow me. And you don't have to be trafficked literally to be following a wolf. Some of us have been following wolves all our lives. We don't know another way. But the good shepherd is here. And the good shepherd knows what we need when we're desperate for rescue. He knows that his children need not punishment for having fallen prey to their captors, they need rescue. They need refuge from shame. He's got that for you. Because when we admit, Mom, I didn't make it, we join the, all those who say, Hey, Mom, I didn't make it. I was walking down Whaley and I didn't make it. I was driving and the police stopped me and I didn't make it. I was asleep in my apartment and I didn't make it. I trusted the wolf, the dealer, the diviners, the elite and now I'm dead. I can't feel anymore. I can't get inside a home. I'm cold. It's so cold out here. But at least when we admit that, we can be naked before the Lord. And a dream dies. That's a good thing. Because the real one can be born. This is the promise the Lord has for us. I want to close with the scripture. For thus says the Lord, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for harm. To give you a future with hope. When you search for me, you will find me. I will let you find me. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. In other words, God is saying, I will bring you home. And this is good news for folks who feel like the only place we have to go back to is gone. He gives us the power to refuse the lies. We stand on the shoulders of the women from ECV's beginnings who said, you know what, make no mistake about me. I'm not even going to pretend like I belong here. I belong to the far country, not America, not Vietnam, but the country that is coming, the country to come. I know who I belong to. And what they did was they bound themselves up in the welfare of others who were also made outcasts in this city, and we can join them. We can join with folks who've been humiliated and scoffed at, who have no trappings of Babylon to cover for their shame. And as we move into a time of communion, I want us to think about we can also join with Jesus. He took up that identity of being humiliated publicly in the empire 
to the point of death on a cross, and we can actually go with him there as we take communion. And I want to invite up Josh to lead us in that. And that's a death that doesn't end in cold, unfeeling estrangement from all our kin, but in life, in radiance. It's a death that ends in a life with our people, gathered up in a homeland with all of our kinfolk with, by, by our side. So let us eat this meal of communion. And join with Jesus in this.